0: These past few weeks, uh, we have heard Paul talk a lot about walking. Um, Walking in unity, in truth, in love, uh, in the light. He's been telling us a lot about how to conduct our lives. And so now, Paul is telling us that uh, if we're going to do all this walking, then we need to think carefully about how we do it, especially as church. And in this brief passage uh, that was read from Ephesians, Paul is crystal clear about the topic. Be careful how all y'all live, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, watch your step and make the most of every opportunity because we live in evil times. And then he proceeds to flesh out this imperative about walking wise with a couple more not that but this contrast don't be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is what God wants don't get drunk on wine but as the cotton patch Bible puts it tank up on the Spirit be filled with the Spirit which Paul then elaborates with five participial phrases speaking sinking singing, making melody, giving thanks, being subject to one another. So let's unpack some of this to be sure we understand what Paul means by living wisely. Because Paul is implying that if we're going to live as church and make a difference in the world, we can't just sit back and hope that everything's just going to turn out okay. First, Paul amplifies what he means by living wisely Uh, When in verse 17, he warns us not to be foolish, careless, unthinking, but instead to understand what God wants us to think and to do. Think carefully about how to live as a people who are characterized by the God whom we know in Jesus Christ. I mean, in a way, we did this very thing, um, with a bit of intensity exactly a year ago when we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. What God wants couldn't be any clearer than that sermon. And then we found out what the will of the CEO of the universe is when we began listening to this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. God is in the process of reconciling all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And it's happening right now in the church, just as it was happening in Paul's day, as he witnessed the the Jews and the Gentiles coming together in Christ. So we walk wisely when we understand what God wants and how that obligates us to think and to act. There's a sense of urgency, though, uh, for Paul in all of this, because he tells us, that the the, the church that walks in Christ-like wisdom will be characterized by making the most of the time because the days are evil. Paul's telling us that we have to be shaped as the community of Jesus in the light of God's will, in the light of God's expectations for which God is going to hold us accountable. So wise people who know What God wants, he says, redeem the time. Uh, Once while I was in Montreal waiting for our order to be filled at a Subway sandwich shop, I noticed a tattoo on one arm of the young woman who was serving us. On her arm was written, No expectations. I asked her about it, and she shared her mantra. No expectations, no disappointments. Not only did I suspect that uh, you know, she had had some situations in her life that had led her to adopt this um, philosophy, but I also thought to myself that you know, her boss might have some expectations that if she didn't fulfill, might end in a disappointing termita- termination of her employment. doesn't always work out, does it? And that's the point here. God has expectations. And we might be disappointed if we don't do something about them, if we don't make use of our time, taking every opportunity. In fact, God verbalizes his expectations, even in today's scripture. And these expectations demand some sort of a decision and action from us. It's it's interesting that uh, this word decision comes from the Latin. It means to to cut off. But sometimes that sounds too radical. We'd rather take time to decide, you know, discuss, weigh our options, consider all the possibilities, wait until all the evidence is in. And there will always be tomorrow. And in some ways, um, that is wise. And sometimes that, that is prudent. After all the father waited for the prodigal son in the parable, right? There'll always be tomorrow for decisions and homecomings. But at the same time, same time, in our gospel reading today, the rich young man may not get another chance once he walks away. Even in this story, there is a sense of urgency about deciding and acting And the point is made unmistakably clear in Psalm 90 that we heard. Length of our days is 70 years, or 80. We have the strength, yet our span is but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, God? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That all reminds me uh, of a commercial that you may have seen recently um, about an investment company. Uh, A young man spies at a party, spies an attractive woman across the, the room. His friend encourages him to go over and introduce himself to her. But he says, well, maybe later. And just at that point, a man comes up, another man comes up to the woman, tells her she's beautiful, asks her if she wants to get married, to which she replies, yes, a priest appears, they say I do, they kiss and hug, she realizes she's pregnant, the champagne cork is popped, and the lesson is, don't wait. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what Paul is saying, don't wait. More seriously, it actually reminds me of something Benedictine monks have taught me. In Latin, it's momento mori, be mindful of dying. Or as an ancient monk advised, take care of your body as if it will live for a long time, but take care of your soul as if you might die today. This awareness of our mortality along with the coming reign of God Gives us a unique power to focus the mind and the heart on what's essential. And just because God is slow in in God's anger and demonstrates abundant mercy, we shouldn't be presumptuous because God is also a God who judges with expectations. Expectations that we use the gifts that God has given us. Gifts given in order to bear fruit for God's kingdom. William Willimon Methodist Bishop, it tells the story of a funeral that he and his wife attended to show support for a parishioner who had been a member of a little church, the family of a parishioner. Uh, uh, he had been a member of the little church in Georgia that um, William uh, Williman was serving at the time. And in the little off-brand Baptist church where the funeral was being held, it was hot and crowded, Williman Will, said he had never seen anything like it before. They wheeled in the coffin, and the preacher began to preach. He shouted, and he flailed his arms. It's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to do this or that in life, but it's too late for him now. He's dead. It's all over for him. He might have wanted to straighten out his life, but he can't now. It's over. But it ain't too late for you. People drop dead every day. So why wait? Now is the day for decision. Now is the time to make your life count for something. Give your life to Jesus. Willimon was incensed. It was the worst thing he had ever heard. And on his way home, he said to his wife, Can you imagine a preacher doing that kind of thing to a grieving family? I've never heard anything so manipulative and cheap and inappropriate. I'd never preach a sermon like that. And she agreed, it was tacky, it was manipulative, it was calloused. But then she added, of course, the worst part of it all is that what he said was true. And that's the point. Perhaps, um, perhaps an aspect of these days that are evil that requires redeeming the time to which Paul refers is that many in our culture worship they they, they worship these gods they have made up themselves with their own self-generated cafeteria-style religious preference. Most aren't crazy about a God who might demand self-examination and repentance and obedience, who wants us to align our will with his will. But Paul tells us that those who will not be foolish who watch their step and live wisely are those who understand what the Lord wants and begin living that way now. Now, to conduct our lives with the kind of wisdom and urgency that Paul's calling for, we'll need to be filled with the Spirit. And he makes that point with a negative first. He says, don't be drunk with wine, something that uh, he might have witnessed uh, at that time, in pagan rituals, religious rituals, uh, or in a Greek symposia where speeches were made while people were getting inebriated on the table wine. But John Stott put it this way: "Well, alcohol is a depressant; the Holy Spirit is a stimulant." And Paul doesn't leave us in the dark about what it means to be stimulated by the Spirit. As I mentioned in the beginning, he spells this out in five participial phrases in verses 19 to 21. Believers who let the Spirit fill them will be church folks who mutually encourage and edify each other by speaking in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, by singing and making melody to the Lord, by giving thanks for all things in the name of Jesus Christ, and by subordinating themselves to one another, out of respect for Christ. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the speaking in Psalms and the singing and making melody are pretty straightforward. You know, The psalmist says, let everything that breathes praise the Lord. A church full of Jesus' disciples who seek wise and Spirit-inspired ways to teach and sing as a congregation while worshiping and thanking God will be shaped into a Christ-like life that comes with praising God. That makes sense. So the singing and the making melody might make someone ask, well, you know, what's gotten into you folks? And the answer is, it's the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about. But there are two aspects of the Spirit's stimulus that need a bit of clarification. The giving thanks and being subject to one another. Because those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are to give thanks to God the Father for all things in the name of Jesus Christ. So the question we should be asking is, how can we give thanks in all things, precisely when all things are sometimes very bad? Well, I think we need to be clear that Paul, first of all, he's not telling us to be thankful. That's an emotional response, being thankful. And that depends on our circumstances. Giving thanks often requires discipline and effort in spite of our circumstances. Now, the act of giving thanks, it might encourage thankfulness. It might encourage that feeling of thanks. For example, sometimes we might not feel particularly thankful for what we sit down, uh, when it's on the table, to sit down to eat. And given um, what's on the table, uh, that might be the case as it was sometimes at our house as our kids were growing up. But what we would do is we would hold hands and sing a stanza of now thank we all our God. And the act of giving thanks uh, soon reminded us how fortunate we were to have a table load of food in front of us, surrounded by people who loved us, and we'd actually find ourselves eating thankfully. So in order to give thanks in all things, we must not wait for the emotion of thankfulness to overwhelm us before we actually act thanksgivingly. And to be clear, what we are giving thanks for is not everything that happens. God is not the author of evil. So we do not give thanks for accidents that maim, drownings, famines, diseases, or anything of that sort. Paul makes that clear when he tells us that spirit-filled people always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Put it this way. Yes, thanksgiving should be a constant theme of our lives, but Paul says it is thanksgiving that is done in the character of Jesus Christ, the one who healed rather than inflicting illness or blindness or lameness. The one who raised another from the dead rather than taking the life of anyone. That is the kind of character that we have when we give thanks. I mean, as Paul reminded us in Romans 8:28, we know that in everything, God works for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And I think to the extent that we remember that God is working in events like 9-11, without causing those events to happen, we can do what Paul commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, namely to give thanks in all things. We can thank God in the midst of adversity for God's sovereignty and care without thanking God for the adversity itself. The God we worship does not bring about disasters, but God often does bring good out of them, because in events like disasters, God is at work to bring about God's purposes. So we thank God in all things, because God is working in all things for his purposes. Spirit-filled people, then, are people who live lives of gratitude. But Paul says that spirit-filled people also are people who subordinate themselves to one another. Now, the word submission occurs at least 20 times in all of Paul's letters, so it sounds like it must have been something pretty important as a concept for him. But what's interesting at this point is that this verse, 21 the last participial phrase that unpacks what it means to be filled with the Spirit, is also a link to the next section of Ephesians that Jordan is going to preach about next Sunday. In our Bibles, verse 22, just beyond our lesson today, says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But the word submit is not in the Greek text. It just says, wives, to your husbands. The translation, the English translation supplies it because the verb submit is in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul intends to link being filled with the spirit to relationships like husbands and wives that Jordan will explain next week. Verse 21 is connected both to verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, and to all that follows from verse 22. Now, without stealing Jordan's thunder next week, a bit needs to be said about this transition. What Paul is saying about the Spirit-filled life of church folks is that they have to engage in mutual submission. And this is revolutionary. It's revolutionary because when Paul will tell wives to submit to their husbands, he's telling them something that the culture already expected of wives. So why is he telling them this? Because Paul's point is that women who are now free in Christ, they don't have to submit to anyone. And yet because they are now free in Christ, they freely subordinate themselves to their husbands, husbands whom I'm pretty sure Jordan will tell us next week are in one sense, of the word to freely subordinate themselves to their wives. Put it this way, if there is someone whom you cannot serve, if there is someone to whom you cannot be subject, then you are not free. And then why submit to one another? It's right in our text, out of reverence for Christ. We do it because it's Christ-like. Because in the hymn that Paul cited in Philippians, in his letter to the Philippians, Christ, he said, had equal status with God, but did not think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of the status quo no matter what. When the time came, Christ set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. He lived a selfless, obedient life, and then he died a selfless, obedient death the death of a common criminal. Christ freely subordinated himself. And that's why we do it with each other. Now, Jesus never demanded his rights. Demanding my rights is not one of the participial phrases that explains what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So we're right back where we started Freely and willingly submitting ourselves to one another is also what it means to walk wisely. It's the secret of maintaining joyful, melody-making fellowship in the midst of a rights-demanding, individualistic culture by always practicing the discipline of mutual submission. Paul could get some help from the letter of James, I think, to make this connection. You know, James said this, Real wisdom, what we've been talking about, walking wisely, God's wisdom begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It's gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor, subjecting ourselves to each other. There's a story about Sir Thomas Beecham, who was to appear as a guest conductor with an orchestra that was lacking in discipline. At the first rehearsal, he was going over the score with the musicians, and the concert master indicated a certain passage and asked, Would you like us to play this, Sir Thomas? Together, Beecham suggested. (laughs) There's one spirit who indwells Holy Trinity Church by whom we are constantly being filled. How does God want us to play the melody that is evidence of the Spirit's filling? By walking wisely. Together. Together. I say this in the name of the Father and the Son.